Jim, it is such a pleasure to have you with me here today to uh, talk about your book, um, Facts and Fears, which I just really enjoyed. Um, as the daughter of an FBI agent, uh, having grown up with a dad um, in the FBI, sort of part of the family, I really certainly relate to the beginning of your book where you talk about really being in the business, the family business, um, and that, that really seemed to have influenced uh, your whole life, did it not? It did, and, and uh, as you can understand, uh, you know, you get all kinds of uh, subliminal messages in a, in a way that you don't even realize when you're growing up, because you just kind of accept your, your uh, lot in life. And uh, it wasn't, you know, later on, I, saw, I had some time to contemplate the impact of my upbringing and, uh, and you know, how much influence my mother and father had on me. And unfortunately, uh, that realization occurred after they passed. And so that was one good thing about uh, writing the book is to contemplate things like that. But you're quite right. Your, your influences in your environment uh, have a huge impact later on. One of the things that I guess maybe I was naive about before reading your book was you really put a, a lot of emphasis, and this may be from sort of the family business and growing up in the law enforcement world, on the connections that were so important in pretty much in D.C. in, you know, sort of coming up the ranks to becoming, um, you know, top-ranking, uh, you know, the office, the top-ranking security officer that you did eventually become. So much emphasis on connections, right? I mean, that seems to be so important in D.C., these getting these connections uh, inside the Beltway. Well, uh, yeah, if they're, if they're the right connections, I guess. Uh, you know, for me, I, I, think, uh, I think of it a little differently as uh, people that uh, mentored me. If you want to call that a connection, I guess, okay. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of uh, Bob Gates, who uh, was the, what was called the director of central intelligence when he was also the director of the Central Intelligence Agency and presided over the intelligence community in the early 90s when I served as director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And that relationship, you know, came back later, uh, much later, when uh, he asked me to uh, return to the Pentagon as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. So, yeah, I guess there's a connection there because we had known each other before and worked well together. And so, you know, he asked me to finish what we thought was just going to be the Bush term uh, in uh, late uh, 2006. And, of course, 19 months turned into three and a half years when, when he got held over, which never happened before, uh, where a secretary of defense of one party was held over by an oncoming president of another. That never happened before in the history of the United States. And so I guess that connection was parlayed into my staying on longer as undersecretary. And then, of course, it was Bob that first approached me about being uh, the DNI. So I guess, it, yeah, I guess it's uh, you know, knowing people certainly helps. But what seemed so wonderful about those connections was that uh, it really seemed, uh, you know, bipartisan, that you were working for one president and then another um, in terms of national security, which brings us really to, I guess, the surprise 
that must have been for you during the election cycle of 2016. Um, you write in your book, and the quote here that, of course, stunned me and I'm sure lots of people, is Russians succeeded beyond their wildest expectations. Please explain that, if you will. Well, what they started out with was pretty modest. Uh, you know, their objectives evolved over time. And first, of course, was simply to try to sow doubt and discord and discontent in this country. And they, they certainly succeeded to a fairly well there. And unfortunately, right now, the United States is a right target for that kind of exploitation by the Russians. And then uh, as time went on and uh, because of the strong personal animus that Vladimir Putin had for Putin, the Russians set about to do all they could to uh, disparage her uh, as much as possible. And then, of course, when uh, Mr. Trump became serious, and initially the Russians didn't take him seriously either, like any, most everybody else, but when it, certainly when he became the nominee, the Russians saw him as a much more appealing candidate than Hillary Clinton, who they didn't like in the first place. So their, uh, their objectives evolved, and given the, the magnitude of their effort uh, and uh, the, the impact they had, uh, I, it's, you know, this is my, my uh, assessment. I, I don't know for a fact, but I believe given the resources that Russians expended which are comparatively pretty modest, when you consider uh, the, the impact they achieved, uh, that's what I meant. The impact they achieved, so are you saying that the impact they achieved, that the Russians tipped the, tipped the uh, outcome, that the Russians tipped the outcome of the election? Uh, I have to, in response to that question, which I get asked frequently, is to first point out that the Intelligence Committee Assessment that we rendered, and by we as the FBI, NSA, CIA, and my office, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, that we rendered and presented to, to uh, well, first President Obama and then uh, President-elect Trump on January 6th and subsequently released an unclassified version of, did not make any call whatsoever about the impact of the Russian efforts to interfere on the outcome of the election. The intelligence community has neither the charter nor the, cap the capability to do that. But break, break, on the 20th of January at 12.01, I became a private citizen. Right. And knowing right. what I do know of the, Rus of the Russian uh, effort and what we've since learned, I think, exemplified by the indictment made public in February of the thir 13 Russian citizens and three Russian concerns that uh, there's no question in my mind the Russians uh, had profound impact on the election. They didn't turn it. When you consider uh, wait, wait, wait. the election I, turned on 80,000 80, votes or less in three states, they reached 126 million uh, voters using a variety of modes, primarily social media, but also RT, their uh, government-funded uh, network, um, plus you know the impact of the hacking of the DNC e uh, emails. I think you put all this together and the, consider the magnitude of what they did. And given the slim margin of what really resolved the election, uh, in my informed opinion, that's all it is, is informed opinion, I think they turned it. So as a private citizen, James, Jim, James Clapper, you say, former director of national intelligence, you say 
that the Russians turned the election. That's what I said in the book. What would you have done differently? What would I have done differently? Yeah. Uh, when? I mean, going back over 50 plus years in intelligence? No, no, so, so sorry, so sorry. You're right, you're right. I should have, as a good lawyer, I should have narrowed that down. Um, now, looking back over the 2016 election and just saying everything that you just told me, the, the private, the, uh, the public uh, uh, report that you, you were part of and you could not, and the, and the intelligence could not, the intelligence community could not make a, an opinion uh, versus what you as a private citizen can say about turning the election. Um, going back now with what you know as a private citizen about the 2016 election, as you just said, was turned by the Russians and, and the multimedia and all of that, what do you think the our intelligence, including yourself, could have done differently or would have done differently, if at all, in the 2016 presidential well, election? I think the intelligence community did a pretty pretty credible job. Now, when you say, what do I know now? Well, I know a lot more now than I did then. Of course. Uh, and so I think we, we did a, a, a credible job in conveying what we were seeing as we became uh, aware of it. Uh, to policymakers, both in the executive branch and the legislative branch. Um, I guess, um, what would I have done differently? Well, maybe I would have, Jay Johnson and I should have put out the, the announcement, the press release we put out on the 7th of October on a different day that didn't coincide with the release of the uh, Access Hollywood audio tapes and the revelation of the dumping of the John Podesta emails. And so our message to the public got lost completely uh, because of those other events overtaking overtaking what we said. So that's one thing maybe we should have picked another day to have done that. Did you know that the Access Hollywood tape was going to be dumped that day? No. Okay, so that was just an accident. It was an accident. Well, yeah, that, I mean, how that, would I, yeah, that's what I'm how saying. Would I, how, how, would I, how would I have known that? Right, so what you just said... You know, that's not, not, Right. So that was an accident. That was that timing was an that timing was was accidental. Well, it was coincidental. Coincidental, right? Better word. You're correct. Um. So, so you you're so you're saying that everything that you could have done was done. That you meaning not just Jim Clapper, but well, I the whole. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go. You didn't ask me that. Okay, I, I you said credible. You're everything right. Everything that could have been done was done. I I say I thought what we did was was credible. credible. We reported as as we as we became aware. A, a lot of people seem to think that all all of our insight into what the Russians did all occurred all in one day. Of course not. Well, it didn't. It unfolded over a period of time, and so as we uh, gained more accesses, as we gained more insight as we collected more, as we understood better what the, the magnitude of what the Russians were doing, I think we did a, a, a reasonably good job of, re, of conveying that to policymakers, both in the executive and the legislative branch. Now, you can do coulda, woulda, shouldas all day long with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. And when the information that you had was, was collectively, uh, as you said, given to the executive and legislative branches, was the information acted upon? Or was the information acted upon? Well, yeah. Uh, uh, 
one way it was acted on was the president of the United States at the time, President Obama, directly confronted Vladimir Putin about it and asked him to stop it, unlike our current president. What about legislatively? Nothing. I mean, I guess nothing really could have been done. Well, what the White House was seeking, uh, specifically in uh, Dennis McDonough and the chief of staff had the lead on this, was to try to – we were trying to, to promote – the promulgation of a bipartisan and and by branch, if you will, meaning executive and legislative branch, to put out publicly about what the Russians were doing and the threat it posed to our system, and and uh, we couldn't great difficulty getting that done on a bipartisan basis. Going forward, what do you think now about the? I'm sure you've been following the Mueller investigation. And, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on where that where the Mueller investigation is going to lead and what's going to be what will happen when when that report comes out ostensibly in September? I have no idea. Uh, I don't know how it's going to be. I don't know what his findings are. I do know this, that whatever we think we know about this out there in the open was a lot more. And I don't know how it'll be handled. I, I guess one way would be a, a referral to the Department of Justice, and then the Department of Justice would have to decide whether, you know, the, whether indictments or criminal prosecution or if the president's implicated uh, an impeachment action, which would have to go to the Congress. So I have no idea how, how this will all work. Uh, I, I do think that either has to wind it up at some point, uh, well before the election, the midterms, or wait until after the midterms are over. I, I'm, I'm sure that's a factor in uh, in uh, his in Mueller's judgment about you know what what to do when. But what the outcome of this will be, uh, I, I have no idea. I just do, I do know that at some point it has to come to an end, and there has to be some uh, uh, resolution for the country because. You know, this whole issue is a cloud over the country and certainly a cloud over the presidency and it needs resolution. Mm -hmm. But just how that will happen, I, I don't know. What about uh, the right now, the, the, the big topic of the day, of course, is these families, these children being separated from their family at the border. I know that's a little bit off topic for you, but it does have national security implications. Um, we hear, we're hearing that nearly 70 separations are happening a day. Um, they're at the at the Mexican border with children being separated from their families. Uh, President Trump is saying it's all the Democrats' fault. It was you know happening during the Obama administration. You would probably know something about that. What are your What are your feelings about uh, what should happen on this, and and any public and any uh, well, national security concerns? Well, I, I I don't think there are national security concerns here. I, I all those little kids. I didn't see any spies or terrorists or any, anything like that. So I, I mean, that's although President that's, Trump uh, is saying, well, although President Trump is saying that, the, and I I kid you not, um, I'm not joking about this. That President Trump is actually saying that some of the that the terrorists are us, using. Um, you know, children is sort of like this is a, a, a fake, uh, you know, a guise to get uh, terrorists, you know, ter yeah. terrorists are using children. I mean, it's, yeah, unbelievable, but that's, I kid you not when I say that. Yeah, well, I think I think it's uh, at best disingenuous, if not right, dishonest to say that it's, it's the Congress's fault or it's the Democrats' fault. No, it's not. Uh, there's no law 
that I'm aware of that requires separating uh, kids from their parents. I mean, I understand uh, the need for immigration reform and all that, but there's got to be a better way than this. This, uh, this does not comport with uh, American values and, and American standards, which I spent 50-plus years defending. Uh, yes, you did. Um, uh, Jim Clapper, it is it's such a privilege to have you here today on the Pursuit of Justice, and, and you really are the emblematic of pursuing justice, as you have for all these years. And I really enjoyed reading your book. You have a very unique um, and perspective on what the Russians did, certainly, in the United States in 2016. And I'm so glad that you were prompted to do the hard work of uh, sitting your rear down and writing this book, because I know how hard that is. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, it is hard. Yeah, when you really get to That's it, it's, I, it's I, hard. I'm one and done. Oh, no, no, I'm no. Never <laughs> <it>. No, <laughs> never say never. Come on. I know it's hard, and then it's, you know, it's, it yeah. is hard work, but it was, it's really fascinating. And as I said, as a, as a daughter of an FBI agent, Myself, um, I certainly I, I got it when you were talking about the, you know being in being in the family. Once you're in the family and you're you're part of law enforcement, yeah. it, it never ends. It's just in your bones, and and I'm so glad it I'm so yeah, glad exactly. it's in your genes. Um, I'm so glad it's in your genes and not just the ones you wear. So thank you so much, uh, Jim, for being with <laughs> us today. <laughs> well, thank you, and it, it, it's great to talk to somebody that uh, you know resonates with. Uh, you know my uh, my uh, upbringing and 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 you do so uh thanks for uh thanks for talking to me about the book you got it well i'm so excited to have with me ken benzinger today he is the author of red card how the u.s blew the whistle on the world's biggest sports scandal and it's the uh the soccer sports scandal of course we're ongoing right now is the 2018 World Cup soccer. It's going on right now in Russia. And I'm thinking, first of all, how did Russia get the World Cup soccer man? Is World Cup a soccer uh, play? Uh, I guess right now they are in the lead, or certainly still not if, not if in the lead. They're in the running for a win. Hmm, if they won, I don't know. I'd be worried about that a little bit. And it's interesting, in reading this book, Ken got into this uh, in, in this book, and the whole book starts with a very sort of strange thing with the IRS, of course, getting involved, which makes you nervous right from the beginning. But I kind of wondered, like, how is this, you know, sort of um, foreign involvement, foreign scandal? How is this, Ken, how is this important for Americans who are really kind of a little bit familiar maybe with uh, soccer for their kids, but really m more unfamiliar with the big leagues of this sport? Why is this sport important or this story important for us? Yeah, well, uh, first off, thanks so much for you, having me. You got and, it. Um, um, I, you know, it's true. Soccer is not, uh, does not crack the top three and maybe not even the top four sports in this country. You right. know, football, basketball, and baseball are, are way ahead in terms of popularity and also just sort of presence in the, in the cultural conversation. Um, but it is, it is becoming more important here. Um, and uh, more importantly, what the, what the prosecutors and investigators that you mentioned, the IRS agents and the FBI agents, discover when they're working on this case is that a lot of the acts, the criminal acts that they were, were uncovering, um, although um, they often took place overseas or involved foreigners, a lot of what was happening was in fact happening within the U.S. Um, and so, you know, 
Um, from a criminal point of view, jurisdiction was not as hard to establish as you might think. Um, they discovered that, that the U.S. banking system is so big and so influential and so important around the world that um, all, these, all these giant bribes they were discovering were going through the U.S. one way, one way or the other. Essentially, um, if you were a corrupt Brazilian soccer official and you were taking a bribe from someone in a different part of the world, let's say at Qatar, for example, it turns out the money to get from Brazil to Qatar would go through banks in New York or in D.C. or in Miami. And so, so it actually did affect our system, and the Justice Department has taken a pretty hard stance on those things over the last decade, saying that financial crimes and money laundering in particular um, that touches American soil in any way is an American sort of a crime against American justice system. And so they, they've been hard on that for a while. They, they went after the Swiss banks. They went after um, all kinds of different institutions. Um, for, for that kind of stuff. So that's sort of from the legal point of view why it matters. And then, you know, I think from sort of the, as part of the cultural conversation, I think it matters because um, uh, I think we've gotten to a point where this is an institution, FIFA, which oversees world soccer, that it was so blatantly corrupt and so out of line that um, there was a feeling, sort of a, a sense that if America didn't step and do, up and do something about it, it would just be allowed to fester. It had been clear over decades that no other law enforcement agency is willing to do anything about okay, it. Okay, so let, let's, let's know, just slow down just for a second yeah. and say, and FIFA is Federation uh, International de Football Association, right? Pretty good, yeah, that's right. Okay, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, my accent is bad. Um, and, and what exactly is FIFA? What is that organization? I, I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah, um, so FIFA is, um, is, was founded in 1904, and it's uh, it's kind of like the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. It's a Switzerland-based nonprofit that oversees all soccer in the world. Okay. So, and all of soccer is organized underneath it. Uh, sort of sort of spreads out like a pyramid beneath. FIFA. Right. So believe it or not, even even the youth teams your kid might have played on, <sighs> in one way or another, are ultimately up the chain answerable to FIFA. Um, and the the fees and the dues that go from youth soccer go to the next level, the next level, until they reach the U.S. Soccer Federation, which is the top U.S. soccer body, and then it reports to a regional confederation, and that re reports to FIFA and Zurich. So that's how it's run. And um, the most important and, and um, attention-getting activity they have is the World Cup. FIFA organizes the World Cup and um, determines where it will be and runs it. And so, and it's its big cash cow. FIFA, the most of its income comes from uh, the World Cup and all the sponsors. How much? How much money are we talking about with the World Cup? What? Give me a ballpark. It's, yeah, it's about five or six billion dollars. Billion with the World Cup. Billion yeah, with a B. Five or six yeah. billion. Okay, for the World Cup. Yeah, so, so that's real money. That's not. A, that's not a little bit of money. Um, right. And it's the most watched sporting event in the world. Right. I mean, it, it puts the Super Bowl to shame in terms of number of eyeballs. You know, maybe not American eyeballs, but everyone else's eyeballs are glued to their sets yeah, during the World Cup and. So it's incredibly important in that in that sphere, and you know um, the popularity of soccer in the other countries is really unparalleled. It's, people are obsessed with it in a way that it's kind of hard for American fans to uh, appreciate. But if you ever go to a country like Brazil or England or Italy, you get a, you, you realize there is no other sport. I mean, yeah, there are other sports there, but no one cares about them. All they care about is soccer. It's as if the NFL, NBA, and MLB were all combined into one thing, and. Um, 
So you, it, the sport becomes incredibly powerful in these countries. It becomes a force not just of sort of sporting interests, but also political and economic interests as well. And FIFA is atop that all. And it's been an open secret among fans for, for several decades that the whole thing is corrupt. But no one ever did anything about it. No one's ever done anything about it. And it's created this incredible sense of impunity among all the people who run the sport. Wait, corrupt is, they corrupt can, is in the sense of the players are corrupted or as, as yeah. the players themselves no, are corrupt? No, I mean, there may be corruption of players, but mostly those guys are just trying to score goals and, and, right. uh, and you know, and play their best and, and get you get on the, on the box of Wheaties or the cover of Sports Illustrated. <laughs> um, or I guess in soccer's case, on the cover of the FIFA video game. That would be the right. high thing for them. But um, no, it's mostly the guys who run the sport, the administrators, right. what some people call the, the sportocrats, right? The right. bureaucrats who run sports. And the, the sort of the platonic ideal of the sportocrat are the FIFA administrators. A lot of men, few of them whom actually ever played the game, um, who dress in fancy suits and fly around the world first class tippling, you know, Dom Perignon and eating caviar in the VIP box. It, it sounds like a cliche, but that really is what their lifestyle was like. And these guys um, in the 1970s, when real money started coming into the game, discovered that they could take a lot of it for themselves and no one would be the wiser. And it started out with a little bit of money and then it got bigger and bigger until many of the officials were pocketing millions of dollars a year. Um, in terms of under-the-table bribes from, from different companies that wanted a piece of the rights or a piece of the television deal or to put the uniform on the players or, or myriad other things that would associate them with the sport. Wow. 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 And so this, so this undercover, this started, the, the unfolding of this scandal and this corruption started with this little IRS digging, right? Well, actually, it's not. The IRS is the guy who breaks it open. Right. He takes this, he takes an investigation that's in process but basically getting nowhere um, and and figures out a way to break it open. And mm -hmm. I want to get to that in a second, but I want to say that the, the origin of the case is about a year, year and a half earlier um, in London where um, an FBI agent um, looking into another case, an FBI agent specialized in Russia looking into another case, gets a tip um, uh, from, a, from a, a very reliable source in London about Russia doing um, questionable things to try to get the World Cup rights, which they ultimately got, and um, and maybe doing you know potentially illegal things. And so this uh, this British uh, intelligence person passes the information to the FBI, and that's how the case opens as an investigation of Russia specifically, um, and it only expands to a larger FIFA investigation when uh, when this IRS guy gets involved. And what he does is he is able to flip an American who is a high, high-ranking FIFA official. Okay, okay. So that's so that really gets it started. And this whole book is, you know, it it's it reads like a thriller, um, but it is nonfiction, uh, and it's just it's it's all about how this is scandal is absolutely uncovered. And I'm telling you. Um, if you and I don't know much about soccer and and still don't really know much about the sport, but I know an awful lot about the corruption in the system. Do you think now that now that Red Card has been published, that there's going to be some that there there will be and have been changes so this corruption is no longer um, does not no, no no longer exists? Yeah, you know, I think there have been improvements 
Um, look, the, the culmination of this criminal investigation we've been talking about was all these guys get dragged out of their hotel right. room in Zurich at 6 in the morning, Zurich time in 2015. There's subsequent arrests elsewhere. People are getting picked up all over the world. But the, the and their sentencing, right, and their sentencing still still to be had, right? Yeah, that's right. So they get convicted. Either they voluntarily plead guilty or a couple of them got convicted at trial. Mm -hmm. Sentencing for most of them hasn't happened yet, and we'll hear about that hopefully in a few months. But, you know, a, guy, a lot of guys are going to see jail time and huge fines because of this. So, so that they certainly cleaned out sort of a generation or two or three generations of rot in the within FIFA's organization. But um, your, to your question about whether things are going to change, you know, there's also beyond the bad actors, there's a cultural problem, which is all these people in FIFA who believe they're entitled to their share, right? It's a mm -hmm. birthright for soccer administrators, these sportocrats, to, to step up and get their share of all the lucre. And um, I think that FIFA is still working to fight back that cultural problem. And that, I think, is a harder thing to crack. I think it's, easy, it's easier to put people in jail than to clean up the sport as a whole. So I, I anticipate that's going to take a longer time. Yeah, I mean, what, yeah, what do you do about the cultural thing? Because you're exactly right. DOJ con investigation continues. Um, you know, there's a reason that it's going to reach beyond Americas, and we've got that. But what what should we be watching for, you know, at the end and, and as we're watching the World Cup in Moscow? Well, you know, I was just um, uh, I was just thinking about that. You know, it was a funny, a funny sense. Today's news um, out of the World Cup um, and the current news is that Sepp Blatter, who was the head of FIFA and who had to was forced to resign in the wake of his arrest um, uh, and then was banned from the sport for six years, is just arriving in Moscow. Um, to attend the World Cup with Vladimir Putin. Um, to me, that's like a brilliant uh, encapsulation of, of, of what FIFA represents and how it ties into world geopolitical things so that even fans of, of people, even people who are not fans of the sport can sort of appreciate the, the larger theater going on there, right? Vladimir Putin is not a soccer fan, but he wanted the World Cup right. because he knew how important it was to everyone in, in the world, what a, what a massive uh, thing it was to give you a sense there are twice as many soccer fans in the world as there are um, adherents to the Catholic Church so it's really big and um, Vladimir Putin knew that so he ho hosts the tournament and then as if to sort of thumb his nose um, both at uh, the U.S. Department of Justice and sort of soccer fans in general he invites that bladder to sit with him in the presidential box at a match um, even though FIFA has banned bladder from the sport and um, doesn't want him there just a few days ago Bladder was sitting with a new president of FIFA in a different presidential box. So we we see it as really just a, it's like a giant soap opera of anything else. And I think that can really provide a fun way to think about it all. Okay, so we shall continue to watch the World Cup slash AKA soap opera of the summer of <laughs> 2018, according to Ken Benzinger. Thank you. Ken, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Red Card is out and uh, out and about and uh, ready for consumption right now. It's a terrific read. Um, and again, even if you don't know much about soccer, it's it's a great it's a great fun read. A thrill it reads like a thriller about the world's biggest sports scandal. And it's it's really still unfolding as we watch, um, as I say, the big uh, the big soap opera of the summer. Um, Ken, thank you so much for being with us and for pursuing justice. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. And yeah, I mean, like, if I could just get a last thing in, which is, I agree. It, 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 don't be scared off by the soccer ball on the cover. There's no, almost no soccer action in this book, but instead, this is like a procedural about cops and about robbers and about good guys and bad guys and how to, how they hunt them down. And I think there's 
enough thrills and chills for any summer read. So oh yeah, really yeah the, the, soccer, the soccer ball on the cover looks like a dynamite about to explode. So you know, dino ball. So don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks so much. Thanks, kid. All right, take care.